I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Micah chapter 2. We will be looking at the entire chapter this morning, verses 1 to 13. If you're using the Blue Pew Bible, you can find that on page 776. Our sermon title for this morning is Oppressors. And the key words for our worshipers in training are woe, preach, and oppress. Uh, In his work, The City of God, Augustine envisions mankind existing within two cities. Uh, The city of God, the city of man, or a heavenly city and an earthly one. And each city is formed principally by, by two loves. He writes, the, earth, the, the earthly city by a love of self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly by a love of God, even to the contempt of self. Today we are uh, going to continue in our series through the book of Micah. And we will see here in chapter 2 Micah's description of those who have succeeded in the earthly city. But... Unfortunately, it is at the expense of entrance into the heavenly one. Over the past two weeks, we we saw Micah's prophetic lament over the coming judgment against uh, two cities, Samaria and Jerusalem. They were the capital cities of Israel and Judah, respectively, and they represented the fundamental problems with both nations. Samaria and the ten northern tribes of Israel would be conquered and laid to waste by the Assyrian army in 722 B.C. And Jerusalem and the southern tribe of Judah would be attacked by Assyria uh, in 701, but it was ultimately in 586 B.C. that they fell at the hands of the Babylonian army led by King Nebuchadnezzar. And so as we saw in chapter 1, we saw this impending judgment, this coming doom, but Chapter 1 doesn't really address, at least in great detail, what were the sins of Israel and Judah that warranted such judgment. This morning, um, in chapter 2, and again uh, next week in chapter 3, we will see what those sins were in much greater detail. So in other words, what we're asking this morning is, who specifically is to blame for this coming judgment? And the charge is laid at the feet of two groups of people. The ruling class of wealthy landowners and the religious class of false prophets. The nations of Israel and Judah had become corrupt nearly from, entirely from the top down. Their political and spiritual leaders were morally bankrupt and they were oppressing the people whom they were called To lead. So let's read chapter 2. We'll outline it and get to work. Chapter 2 of Micah, verse 1. It says, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house a man and his inheritance. Therefore says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, 
we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore you will have none to cast the lot, the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses and from their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place of rest. Because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. So there are three things I want you to notice with me in these 13 verses. First, in verses 1 to 5, we'll see that God watches the way that people in charge treat those under their charge. Second, in verses 6 to 11, we'll see that God also condemns false prophets who fail to speak out against sin. And third, verses 12 to 13, we'll see that even in the midst of the sins and the failings of secular and spiritual leaders, God protects and provides for His people like a shepherd and a king. So God watches those who are in charge. He condemns false prophets. And He protects and provides for His people, even in the midst of the failings of their leaders. So first, verses 1-5, to we see Micah's proclamation of woe against the rich ruling class who oppressed the poor under them. The judgment of God was coming out against the rulers of Israel for several reasons, according to Micah in these verses. He says it's because these wealthy landowners were busy devising wickedness. They were working evil on their beds during the night and they carried it out as soon as the sun rose. This highlights the brazenness of this group of wicked elites. Criminals normally would commit their crimes at night under the shade of darkness. But not so with those under Micah's microscope here. They commit their crimes in broad daylight. In the ancient Near East, court was held at first light of day. This was to symbolize justice, like the sun rising each day to put the shadows of darkness and criminal activity to flight. These men, however, perverted the legal system and learned to circumvent and use the courts for their own gain at the expense of the poor. 
Micah says that they coveted land belonging to another, belonging to perhaps the common people, and they would take it by threat. They would take it by force and manipulation. They took away houses and oppressed men and their inheritances. They were oppressing and defrauding the poor, running them out of their homes and off their lands by wicked and deceitful schemes. And they thought, perhaps since I make my plans at night, while everyone else sleeps, I can get away with it. They thought that no one saw, because all was in order, and they carried about their business like everything was fine in the day. But at night, while everyone else slept, there was one who was awake, who saw what they planned and how they carried it out. And Micah tells us he will remain silent no longer. God says that as they planned evil on their beds against their fellow man, He was devising disaster against them from which they could not escape. This is, of course, another reference to the coming onslaught of the Assyrian army. When Assyria came, the oppressive leaders fell into disgrace. They were mocked. They were derided and they moaned bitterly. Because all that they had possessed was to be stripped from them and given to another. He says even to an apostate. The Assyrians, who would come and devastate them, would take their land, and in turn, they left much of it, ironically enough, to the poor people of Israel who had been so oppressed by their leaders because the Assyrians carried away the wealthy. So in short, God's message to these wicked, oppressive rulers in Micah's day is very simple. He says, I am coming for you. But verse 5 is the most striking judgment of all of this. Because not only are they to be mocked, humiliated, and tossed out of the land... He says, you shall have no lot in the reapportioning of the land after the exile. This is what's going to be looked forward to here. After the rich ruling class of the day was booted from the land, there would eventually be a return to the land. A, a redistribution of it is this promise. He says, you will not be partakers of this redistribution. And so here's why it's so striking, why this is so severe, because when we think about when does this occur, when does this redistribution of the land occur, well, Jeremiah 31.31, or like we saw in our assurance of pardon this morning, ultimately, after the exile, it's a new covenant that God makes with His people. And we see that all of the promises to Israel, come to ultimate fulfillment, not in a small piece of land, but in Jesus Christ. These wicked oppressors aren't simply being excluded from the kingdom of God in a temporal sense. They are being excluded from the kingdom of God eternally. 
And so what is the takeaway? What is the relevance of this for us in modern day America? We should remember, God watches the way that leaders treat the people under their charge. From the father in his home, to the local businessman, to the Fortune 500 CEO, to congressmen and senators, Supreme Court justices, the President of the United States, God detests abusers and oppressors wherever they are found. I think a particularly relevant example is the corruption that we see in the ruling class today. Politicians hop into bed with corrupt business leaders and bankers to manipulate markets, to turn major profits for very specific people at the expense of vast numbers. We are often used, abused, and manipulated by the elite ruling classes of our day in ways not totally distinct from how things were in Micah's day. We are regulated and taxed to death. All under the guise of keeping us safe from ourselves. But in reality, it often only serves the gain and advantage of corrupt politicians and certain heartless corporations. It's not wealth, to be fair, right? To be clear, it's not wealth gained honestly that God hates. It is wealth gained by means of deceit or oppression. But lest we think it's merely them out there that should hear this, what about us? What about you, mothers, fathers, husbands, employers, pastor? For any of us in some position of power or authority in life, what temptations do we face to oppress or abuse those under our charge for our own gain? We should remember God sees all and comes to the defense of the downtrodden. So on the flip side, for any of us who are answerable to another which is every single one of us. Let us take heart. We may feel like we're under the thumb and constant watch of Big Brother, who's just using us for his own advantage. We may feel used at home. We may feel used at work. But there is a God in heaven to whom every leader in every sphere of life will answer. And you can know justice will be served. And so we see in our first point there, right? God watches carefully those who are in charge. But secondly, in verses 6-11, to we see the disgrace of spiritual leaders in particular who fail to confront sin. Do not preach, they say. Don't preach such things, Micah. Nothing's wrong. Judgment isn't coming. This was the message of the spiritual leaders in Micah's day. Many of them at least. They rebuke Micah for his boldness to declare of coming judgment against Samaria and Jerusalem. Both for the sins of their leaders in particular, but also for the people whom the leaders had led astray. Now if you look in verses 6 and 7 in the ESV, the quotation 
uh, ends with verse 6. But I think uh, it, it makes most sense really to actually read the quotation ending at the, with the, really the first half of verse 7. And so the prophets go on. They say, don't, don't talk like this. Disgrace won't overtake us. Don't prattle on about such things. Is it possible that God has grown impatient? Are these calamities that have fallen upon Israel really from God? It's likely that these false teachers in Micah's day were big champions of passages like Exodus 34.6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin. They rejected Micah's prophesying that God would ever come in judgment. So they quote Exodus 34.6 or passages like it. They reject Micah's message. They quote it to the people, but they only quote a portion of it. They don't quote it all the way to the end. God is merciful and gracious, yes, but He's also just. That text ends, He will by no means clear the guilty. This is the danger of false teachers and false prophets. They preach half-truths. Because we know the most convincing lie is one that sounds nearly identical to the truth. One that is almost indistinguishable from it. And they knew it. And so they preached it. But Micah interjects in the remaining half of verse 7. He says, do not my words do good to those who walk uprightly? He says, in other words, yes, what I'm saying is hard. It's difficult to hear. I'm in anguish over it. But to those who walk uprightly, these are words of life. Perhaps Micah had Proverbs 9-8 in mind when he said this. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man. And he will love you. Those who are wise would hear and heed Micah's words of warning. It would only be the foolish scoffers who would reject his message. But unfortunately, it seems that nearly everyone to whom he spoke fell into the latter camp. God's people, he says, had risen up and become his enemies. They bought and paid for teachers. And told them, teachers who told them exactly what they wanted to hear, so that they could continue on in their sin. The very end of verse 8, there's a says they 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 stripped the rich robe from those who passed by trustingly with no thought of war. Another possible reading, which I you probably can see in a footnote in your Bible, is that it's it's not men with no thought of war, but it's it's those coming home from war. Which I think fits better here. It says they, they took advantage of the naive by stripping them of their luxurious garments like ravenous soldiers returning home from war who've been hardened by the things that they had experienced. And so they, they steal and they, they drive women and children from their homes. These are the things going on and the, and the prophets failed to speak against them. And so Micah says, this is no place of rest. This, there's a grievous destruction coming against those who do such things. 
But the people had no interest in hearing the truth. They wanted a preacher who was nothing more than a windbag, preaching lies, offering to them the glories of wine and strong drink. One commentator said they wanted, just, they wanted beer and wine preaching. They said, don't, don't speak, as, speak of us, speak to us of coming judgment. Just give us a menu, Micah. Does this sound familiar? How would you characterize the church in America today? Are most churches brimming with godliness, theological acumen, love for the lost, unity of mind and heart and spirit and sound biblical doctrine? I don't think so. We don't want to hear about sin and judgment and salvation and grace. We just want to eat and drink and be merry. And so what do we do? We accrue pastors who will tell us exactly what we want to hear. Think about what what is missing from so many churches in this country. Any mention of sin, for one. People go in, they hear a message about how to live a better life, have a happier marriage, Better sex, raise better behaved kids, fight for a promotion at work, get their diet under control or whatever, and God is somehow sort of sprinkled in there, treated like a magic genie who he can get you all that stuff, and then they leave. But they leave no nearer to Christ than when they came. Fact, they leave further away from Christ because they've been taught a false Christ. Just take a look at the most popular Christian podcasts on iTunes. Friday night, I, I, I looked at the top five episodes. And Oprah had snagged the top two spots. Joel Osteen and Stephen Furtick grabbed three and four, respectively. And then Oprah came back in at number five. I think that tells us a lot about where things stand as far as our spiritual hunger goes today in America, in the West. But let's look, thirdly, at some hope. Verses 12 and 13, we will see, praise God, that even in the midst of the failings of secular and spiritual leaders of a nation. God offers peace, protection, and provision to His people. The Lord, through Micah here, says in these verses 12 and 13, He says, even though your political leaders and your prophets fail you and they lead you astray, I will surely assemble all the remnant of Israel. Even in Israel, even in these degraded, destructive, disgusting nations, there was a remnant, a remainder of people upon whom God would show mercy. And there is not one of them, one of this remainder that would be left out, that would be lost. He would set them all together like 
a flock in its pasture, a a noisy multitude of men. They can be noisy because they're living without fear, because their king, their shepherd is in their midst. They can go out from pasture, but they don't go out alone. The king passes before them at their head and he protects and provisions them. This is the first explicit word of hope given by the Lord through Micah. And what a word of hope and assurance it is. It is a confirmation that God would deliver Jerusalem from the hands of the Assyrians through the prayer of King Hezekiah. It's a foretelling of that. Remember, the Assyrians, they marched right up to the gate of Jerusalem. And Judah's king, little K, was powerless to do anything about it. But we're reminded here that Judah's king, Big K, would come to their rescue and drive the Assyrian invaders away. And he slew 185,000 of them in a single night. And so the message here is this. Our hope is not in a political party or a president. Our hope is in, it's not in a pastor or a spiritual leader. Our hope is in God. The people of Samaria and Jerusalem were not to look to their leaders for salvation. Their leaders had failed and would continue to fail them. They were to look not to a king whose dominion stretched but a few miles from either Samaria or Jerusalem. They were to look to a king whose kingdom was from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. It has been said that the best of men are men at best. And so even if we were to get the perfect political situation with the best leaders the world has ever seen, even if you had the best men, the most faithful pastors come on board here at Redeemer Baptist Church, we'd still have sinful men at the helm. Our ultimate hope can't be in political parties or prominent pastors, but that doesn't mean that we're without hope. I alluded to it a moment ago. I want to to read Psalm 72. It says, Give the King your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal Son. May He judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May He defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all the generations. May He be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In His days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May He have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before Him and may His enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render Him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before Him. All nations serve Him. For He delivers the needy when He calls, the poor and Him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy, and He saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, He redeems their life, and precious is their blood in His sight. Long may He live, and may the gold of Sheba be given to Him. May prayer be made for Him continually, and blessings invoked for Him all the day. 
May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. May people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May His name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in Him. All nations call Him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wonders. Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and Amen. Do you hear the contrast between this King, Christ, and the kings of Israel? What about the leaders in our day? Christ judges with uprightness. He defends the cause of the poor and crushes the oppressor. He provides protection and provision to His people. He rules from one end of the earth to the other. One end of the universe to the other. He delivers the needy when He calls and He offers help to the poor and destitute. He doesn't prey upon the poor, but He has pity on Him and He saves the lives of the needy. Friends, this is our King. He is our good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. But see, he, Christ, obtained the crown not through malicious intent, not through deceit, but through the cross. Kings and presidents take and take and take. Jesus came not to take, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The king of the world came and humbled himself to the point of death for his people. And he did it for people like us. Sinners, liars, thieves, adulterers, drunkards, man-fearers, God-haters, revilers, lazy, gluttons, schemers, covetous, corrupted, corroded beast, divisive, destructive, damned sinners, proud, pretentious, perverted idolaters, broken, bereaved, battered souls. And through faith in Him, we all can be saved. He offers Himself to each and every one of us this morning. Believer, will you reach out again once more and enjoy the saving mercy of God for you this morning? I know many of you are coming here today weighed down by cares and concerns. You've come carrying the weight of unconfessed sin or the weight of unrelenting suffering or both. Believer, friend, have you forgotten that King Jesus, your shepherd, offers you freedom from your burdens now? Are you afraid of tomorrow? Your King goes out before you and He will not leave you. Are you feeling guilty about yesterday? Your shepherd was slain by the Almighty for you. Oh, Christian, carry the weight and the fear and the anger and the anguish no more. Look to Christ. Look to Him once more and live. Find life for your fading soul. Find rest for your weary heart. Find joy for your broken spirit. Find hope for your wounded mind. You do not walk or fight alone, but the King in all His might walks and He fights with you. For anyone here who doesn't know Christ, 
do you know that these same mercies are offered to you? But you currently stand outside of their enjoyment. At this moment, you stand condemned before the king. The king, the same king who hates all oppression and oppressors. He hates all sin. Shall you escape simply because you don't hold political or pastoral office? No. The axe has been raised. It may fall at any moment, but there is still hope. The king offers you clemency. All you must do is embrace him by faith. And Christ is yours. And all his benefits with him. Christ in all his fullness can be yours. Does your proud heart tempt you to procrastinate? I pray you would hear the word of life and be propelled to peace by it. Because you're at war. A war you will lose. But here is Christ offered to you this day. Will you take him? Will you have him? Entrust yourself to him. And though the strains of life continue to stream down upon you, your king shall stand the gap, and in the end, nothing shall separate you from the love of God. And you will be welcomed into his arms as a good and faithful servant. This is God's word to us this morning. Men will fail us. God never will. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for another glimpse behind the curtain. And the truth is, the curtain has been torn in two. But our eyes are dull and dim. And we struggle to see. Oh, give us light that we might see. That we might see Christ and be enveloped in His glory and splendor. Do you take Your Word proclaimed through feeble and faltering lips and send it out, O God. Send it out into each of our hearts this morning. And do a great work there. Make us more like our Savior, our Shepherd and King, Jesus Christ. It's in His name that I pray. Amen.